0: Hello and welcome. This is Emphasis Added, a podcast by the Houston Law Review, where we highlight legal issues, prominent lawyers, and obscure Blue Book rules. We are your hosts, Adri Langemeyer and Robert Cunningham. Judge Jeff Brown was appointed in 2019 to the federal bench for the Southern District of Texas. He is a UHLC alum and former chairman of the board for the Houston Law Review. Judge Brown has a long history of service to his community, starting at the age of 16 when he became an Eagle Scout and continuing into his legal career. Prior to his appointment to the federal bench, Judge Brown sat on the district court for the 55th District of Harris County, the 14th Court of Appeals, and the Texas Supreme Court. Judge Brown, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, happy to be here.
0: Well, we're very thankful that you gave us the time to uh, come and speak with us today. So we're gonna dive right in. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up.
1: Okay. Uh, I was born in Dallas, and I grew up in Garland, a suburb of of Dallas, uh, and lived there um, right up until I left for college.
0: Okay. Wow. And I think Garland has grown a bit as a suburb of Dallas, probably since you grew up there. Is that right?
1: It has. It has. I have not been back a whole lot, but when I have been back, I've been kind of amazed to see how much bigger it's gotten
0: yeah so was there anything unique about your experience growing up
1: well my uh, my dad was a police officer he was a Dallas police officer for 35 years wow and uh, I was the oldest of three boys oh and wow growing up the growing up the son of a police officer certainly was uh, was an unusual experience I think it was oh. a good experience
0: yeah absolutely experience. well there, and it's seemed- a lot of Oh, I'm sorry. A lot of
1: respect for Law and Order in our house.
0: Yeah, Um, and I and I was wondering too if that was uh, a heavy influence on you and kind of moving you towards um, community service or your interest in the law.
1: I think it definitely made me interested in public service. Mm -hmm. Uh, I uh, and I did want to when I when I went to law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor and think I trace that back to my dad having been a police
2: officer.
0: Yeah. Wow. So from Garland, Texas, you went to the University of Texas in Austin. What did you study there?
1: Uh, English major, history minor. Um, My wife uh, was also an English major. We met in a Shakespeare class at UT, 10 selected plays of Shakespeare. Uh, So English worked out well for me there too, English and UT.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. Did you you ever try to write her any sonnets or poetry during your time in the Shakespeare class?
1: Um, I don't remember any sonnets. I probably did try to write some poetry and we worked on our papers together.
0: Oh man, study buddies. That's the way to go. Um, So at that time when you were still at UT, did you know that you wanted to go to law school right after college or...
1: Yes. I, I think I, I I can remember as early as eighth grade thinking that I wanted to go to law school.
0: Oh, wow. And, um,
1: and what I remember about that was I wanted to be president of the United States. And I saw a list of the presidents and their occupations. And a lot of them had been lawyers. Okay. And that's kind of, that's kind of what led me into it. And then, you know, my dad being a police officer certainly played a role too, but I knew pretty early on that I wanted to go to law school, and so the whole time I was at UT, uh, I knew that my next step, I wanted, I wanted my next step to be law school, and that's a big reason why I, why I majored in English. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that, I mean, I was good at English, and I liked it, but also I had heard that it was a good major for law school because of the critical reading and writing, that you learn.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's such um, a great point that you bring up, which is that the earlier that you know that you have an interest in the law, the better really it is for you because you can start really focusing in on those critical skills that you need as a lawyer, like reading and writing. Um, And I think it's interesting that you did choose English because, you know, I I think I meet a lot of law students that maybe go into a poli sci background or some other kind of public speaking background not realizing that the real foundation of being a lawyer is writing. And if you can just, if you can write, you can figure the rest out.
1: Yeah. I was very fortunate to have, to have learned that. I think I was reading about, you know, what good, what were good majors for for law school. And once I saw that English was one of them, I, I latched onto that. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's, that's very true about, about writing being, it's a much larger part of lawyering than what, People think before they go to law
2: school. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think it's, you know, a lot of it has to do with the TV shows and movies that they see the lawyers. You don't, you don't see the lawyers writing or researching. You see them arguing in court, see them speaking. Right. Uh, So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It wouldn't be as much of a show if it was just one person alone in a room trying to knock out a brief or a a memo. Um, But it would be much more accurate. Yes, I think so as well. From the University of Texas, uh, you came to the University of Houston Law Center. Go Cougars. um, And you were part of the Houston Law Review there. And I'm curious, did you have to write a note or comment at that time? And do you remember what it was about?
1: Yes. I wrote, for some reason, and I don't know if this is still true now, you could either write one comment or two notes. Mm. If you chose a case note, you had to write two. And for some reason, I went with a case note. And... Um, my first one, which was the better of the two, was about uh, punitive damages in Jones Act cases. So it's a maritime topic. Yeah. Uh, and my second one had something to do with the Texas venue statute, which had just been changed by the legislature at that time. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I did have to. I did have to write and wrote two comments.
0: Okay, yep, so we're we're still writing notes and comments. I think the uh, requirements have changed a little bit since then, but we're all getting that that great writing experience. And then so you went on from there and you actually were on the board, um, chairman, I believe, for the University of Houston uh, Houston Law Review. What was that experience like coming back after having been a part of this great organization and and being able to have a part in its direction?
1: You know, it, it's it's been very rewarding for me. I'm still on the board. I'm not chairman anymore, but uh, I, I I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that connection back to the law school and to the law review, uh, especially. And I you know I don't know if other law reviews have the kind of relationship with their board that I feel like the Houston Law Review does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. I have enjoyed getting to take part in the the mentorship that comes from that close relationship between the board and between the board of directors and the editorial.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, obviously we are a a product of the Houston law review. So I'll do a a little plug here, but I think that is one of the great parts of being part of a journal, whether it's a law review or another journal is um, the access to fantastic respected and successful attorneys that we have and can kind of learn from. So if there's any law students listening, highly encourage journal experience if you have that opportunity. Um, Yes, I
1: do too.
0: Good. So after law school, or at what point, I guess, did you think that you might want to become a judge? You knew since eighth grade that you wanted to become a lawyer. When did it kind of get into your head that, okay, I want to be a judge?
1: You know, I think it may have started a little bit in law school, but it really... Uh, it really it really became a goal of mine during my clerkship at the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, that's really when I uh, when I got interested in it And I think it was probably more after I was there I was hired by Jack Hightower
2: mm-hmm.
1: who was a uh, who was kind of in his last well he retired from the court while I was clerking for him so he was an elder statesman. Democrat on the court, and Governor Bush appointed Greg Greg Abbott, who at that time was a young trial judge in Houston, kind of a rising star Republican, uh, to replace Judge Hightower. So I had five months with Hightower, and seven months with Abbott, and you know I think Abbott, coming from the trial bench in Houston, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a young and exciting guy, um, made it sound fun, uh, and I already knew, that I liked I liked being part of the judging process okay, um, from from my clerkship. So I think I think that's where it really sunk in. Was it when I was at the uh, Supreme Court as a law?
0: Yeah. And uh, such an interesting experience. You had getting to uh, clerk first for just Judge Hightower, um, who was a Democrat, and then going on to Greg Abbott, who was a Republican. What what did you notice kind of as differences in their approaches, especially with Greg Abbott coming from, like you said, the district court?
1: You know the this was true when I clerked there and it mm-hmm. was true when I served there too nine very strong personalities on a court like that and judge Hightower and judge Abbott were no different I think the differences between the two of them had about about the least to do with their political parties mm-hmm. it was it was more just their more just their style judge Hightower had not the only place he ever was a judge was at the Supreme Court, but he had all these other experiences. He had been in Congress, he had been in the state legislature, mm-hmm. he had been first assistant attorney general, uh, and had a had a was at the end of a long career.
2: Mm-hmm. And Judge
1: Abbott uh, was coming from the trial bench, and I think that he uh, he had more of a trial judge's personality, where he liked to. Crack wise from the bench when we were in when we were in arguments uh, and get some reaction out of the folks who were in there much which is much more like what a trial judge might do to mm-hmm. you know, engage the people who were in the courtroom in a, in a more casual fashion. Um, so it was it was great to it was great to get to work for both of them and to get to see the different styles. That they
0: used. Yeah, well, and you know you had the opportunity to have two fantastic mentors early in your career. So I'm wondering if there was uh, one particular lesson that you took away from that experience and carried with you further on into your career?
1: You know, the, the, the lesson that I remember learning from my clerkship was one that I think a lot of law clerks uh, say that they, that they pick up, and that is that once you see the work that people are turning into the court, you realize that you can do this too. Because there's, it, it can be you see, you get to see a lot of really good briefing, and you get to see a lot of very poor briefing, and uh, and it, it, it kind of serves it serves as an encouragement mm-hmm. to young lawyers who are worried about whether they're going to be able to do this or not. They can they can aspire to write as well as the the writers of the really great briefs, but go in knowing that they're already a step ahead of a lot of lawyers because they're already better writers than a lot of the people
0: who, who yeah. And that is really encouraging because I think it's easy to forget that writing is a skill that you can develop. It's not something that you're just good at or not good at. And I think clerking gives you the opportunity to really see that. Um, Were there any lessons that you learned from Judge Hightower and Judge Abbott, well, former Judge Abbott, that you have applied to your own law clerks?
1: You know, what I really liked about both of them was the... uh, was the one-on-one time that they gave with their with their clerks, mm-hmm. and I try to uh, I try to do that too. That's you know, a clerkship is only for a year or two, and uh, so it's a short amount of time to get to know the clerks and for the clerks to kind of get some exposure to the to the judge and the way the judge thinks and the way the judge approaches a case. Uh, and so I try to I try to provide that to my clerks like it like it was provided to me.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure that they uh, really benefit from that, and thank you for that. So, from the uh, clerkship experience that you had after law school, you went on to Baker Botts in Houston. What kind of work were you doing there?
1: You know, when I was at Baker, I was in the trial department, which is what they called it at the time. I think I think all of the all of the sections of the firm have are, have changed now, and there, there's not a trial department okay. anymore. But um, there's a litigation section or something it's just it's a different name but we, but we were very proud of the fact that we were it was the trial department and something else that was true about baker bots at the time and i don't know if this is still true or not it may be uh t- lawyers in the trial department didn't really get pigeonholed into into certain areas of mm. the law so you could so so i had a nice variety of cases and i was very grateful for that mm. i had I did some product liability work for some pharmaceutical firms, but also for Ford Motor Company.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I did some commercial litigation uh, for Pennzoil and for other big companies. And then I also got to, there, there was then and still is, one insurance defense docket left at the firm. It's for the Texas Farm Bureau insurance companies. hmm and it is a it's a flat fee client that the firm actually loses money on, but they keep those cases around to get real trial experience for their mm. young associates in the trial department. And uh, not everybody gets to work on that docket. Uh, at, when when I was there, there were a couple of other dockets like that. There was one there was one for UPS, and there was one that they called the shock docket, which was for. Houston Lighting and Power at the time. Oh, wow. You know, um, but I, I got to work on the Farm Bureau do- docket, and it meant that I got into the courtroom a lot. And I had, by the time I left Baker Botts, uh, in about five years of practice there, I got about a dozen jury trials. Oh, wow. Which is, was, was about as unusual then as it is today. Yeah. While you're at a big firm to get that much trial experience. So Absolutely. I was very fortunate.
0: Absolutely, and probably even more unusual, uh, these days. So would you say like for young lawyers, is it better to get that broad experience or if they have an idea about wanting to specialize in an area, is it okay for someone to just dive into that specialized area?
1: You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with specializing. If Mm -hmm. you find an area of the law that you like and you can get good at it and really engross yourself in it. I think that's I think that's just fine. And I think that had I stayed in private practice longer, that would have eventually happened. I you know, I say that there are a lot of opportunities for there were there were a lot of opportunities for young associates at the firm then to try a lot of different things out. But most of the partners had particular clients who mm-hmm. they worked for. So you we were always working towards more specialization.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but I, I and I think that's I think specialization in the law is, is good for clients to be able to go to uh, particular lawyers who know that area of the law, especially well.
0: Mm-hmm. Of your um, five or six years that you were at Baker Bots, what did you like most about being in big law and, and maybe what was something you struggled with?
1: You know, I think the, the resources that you have at a big law firm are. Are really great. The uh, back then, law firms had libraries, and, and Baker Botts had this amazing team of librarians who would who would help young associates with their with their research, uh, and just had a great, you know, a fantastic lot library itself. Um, on each floor, there was a big library. Uh, there were those kinds of resources. <laughs> if you uh, if you worked late. Uh, the firm bought dinner. It was a, it was called the dinner line and you'd call and, and the firm would, if you were working late, the firm would, would pay for your dinner. Uh, and then, yeah, the, and then just the, I don't think I could have had the variety of cases that I had if I had not been in a big law firm with lots of clients and lots of different
2: kind, mm-hmm.
1: kinds of work. Now on the, the downside of it is the downside that I think everybody acknowledges about big law, and that is that it can be it can be a big and personal place mm-hmm. where there is a lot of attrition. You know, i i I don't think there is. I don't think there is anybody from my class left at Baker Watts mm. who was in who was a. Uh, maybe there are some corporate lawyers, but I don't think there is anybody who went to trial uh, who's still at the firm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so there is. It's for some people, it's a place you stay your entire career. For some people, it's not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that's probably expected and, and not too unusual for right. big law, at least. Um, during that time that you were at Baker Botts, you are, were also an adjunct at the University of Houston Law Center. What class did you teach there?
2: When,
1: when I adjunct while I was at the firm, I think mm-hmm. I taught one semester of pretrial litigation. Mm. Um But I taught maybe a couple of semesters or more of legal research and writing. At that time, the law school was using adjuncts to teach those
0: classes as opposed
1: to uh, faculty. So, um, yeah, I taught some legal research and writing.
0: Wow. That's actually really interesting interesting to me because um, it seems like that would be a great experience as a student getting to learn from someone who's kind of in the fields currently uh, and can kind of teach best practice from their experience.
1: Yes, I, th- I think it was. I think it was good too. And one of one of the best professors I had at U of H for law school was uh, a man named Gus Shill, who is now no longer with us. I'm sorry to say, but Gus was a partner at Royston Razor, Vickery and Williams, which is probably the state's preeminent admiralty law firm. Mm. And he taught a handful of classes, and I took everything that he offered. I didn't even know that I wanted to go into maritime law, but I took everything that Gus offered because he was in the real world, and it was so interesting to go to get to learn from someone who was out there practicing on a daily basis. Um, I learned a lot from my from my professors from the academic world, mm-hmm. but I I learned so much from Gus. I think that adjuncts are very valuable to law schools.
0: Yeah, and I can definitely echo that. Some of my favorite classes have been with adjuncts, and it's just fun sometimes to hear the war stories from outside the hallowed halls of the library at the Law Center.
2: Sure.
0: Uh, So from Baker Botts, you entered into your first judicial appointment. You were a judge at the 55th District Court in Harris County, uh, where you were appointed in 2001 and then elected in 2002. So I'm curious just how that process works and how that opportunity came about, how that discussion got started, I guess.
1: You know, there was um, Sherry Raddick was the judge of the 55th at the time. And she, uh, she's now the chief justice of the first court of appeals. And she, there was a vacancy on the court of appeals that she was appointed to. And that's what created the vacancy in her court. And I guess I knew about the way judges got selected by the governor when there were vacancies like that, probably through Jane Bland, who was
2: mm-hmm.
1: at Baker Botts with me a few years ahead of me at Baker Botts and had been appointed by Governor Bush around, I think she was appointed in 1997.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I was at the firm when she was undergoing all of that. And So I, I learned about it. And also she was about my... She was about, she had also been out of law school about six years, and there were a lot of, Pat Mizell had only, was a, was very young, he got on the bench, he's now at b and uh, On the Supreme Court, John Cornyn, Craig Enoch, Tom Phillips, Nathan Hecht, were all around 32 years old when they first became trial judges, and I was aware of that, so I, I kind of decided that this is this seems to be enough experience for me to go for this. So
0: wow. I went for it. That is um, such a great story, one, to hear just all of those names that we're so familiar with as uh, you know, Houston law students. Um, and of course, Jane Bland is, is on the Supreme Court now, and we have some former uh, Houston Law Review members that are clerking for her. But uh, you point out such an interesting point, which is that, It is so important to be able to see someone doing something to help you realize that it's a possibility for you. And that points back to the importance of mentorship and just exposure for law students to these, um, whether it's judges or attorneys or whoever it might be, it really uh, is so impactful to just see somebody and say, oh, they're younger than I thought and less experienced than I thought, and they're doing this thing, so I must be able to do it too, so um, for that reason, I love hearing that story from you, because when I saw that you had been appointed, you know, six years as, in as attorney, that was my first thought, too, was like, oh, that seems kind of young. Um, but it's cool to hear that that was a normal thing and that it encouraged you to pursue that as well.
1: well I look back on it now, and I think I don't know what the governor was thinking, appointing such a young experienced <laughs> guy to the bench, but I'm, but I'm glad he did.
0: Yeah, and it's it's worked out in the long run, obviously. Um, so moving from being a trial lawyer at Baker Botts and becoming at, like you said, 32 years old or around there, a judge, what was that transition like from private practice to the judiciary?
1: It was, uh, it was probably smoother than I expected it to be. Uh, it, there was a lot of, uh, there was certainly a learning curve, mostly having to do with the even though I only heard civil cases and I had been in civil litigation at the firm, uh, there's a, there's a wide variety of civil cases that come into the courts in Harris County. And so there was a lot of new law that I had to learn. There was a lot about uh, there was a lot about procedure that I had to, to pick up. I, I do remember one of the things I had to get used to was I was moving from I was moving from case file to case file, working on things. And right after I got to the bench, I caught myself a few times thinking I need to capture the time from that case that I just <laughs> was working on. And because I, because I had had to bill time, right. I, was at, I was at the firm. That's such a huge part of your life when you're practicing at a big law firm. Um, and that was very liberating to not ever have to bill another minute of time.
2: Oh,
0: that, bad. It was a
1: nice adjustment.
0: Oh yeah, I can imagine it was a bit like a phantom limb at first where you're just like, "Oh, I don't I don't need to do this."
1: That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, that's exactly what it felt like.
0: Yeah. So, uh, on that that learning curve along the way, how did that work for you? Did you have to like study in your free time? Did it feel like you were back in law school in a way trying to get up to speed on things so that you could be effective in the court?
1: Well, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. I had to dive into the law and learn something about it on my on my own if the, if the briefing from the parties uh, wasn't helpful enough. Uh, and that's one of the big things, one of the nice things about being a trial judge on the federal bench now is when I was on the state court bench, I didn't have any law clerks. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I have three law clerks and they can help me get up to speed on new areas of the law that I don't know much about. The other thing that I did though, was one of the there were 25 civil district judges in Harris County when I was on that bench. And a lot of them I got to be very close to and leaned on them mm. very much. Uh, Jane Bland, again, was someone who I turned to a lot. She was always very a big help. Tracy Christopher was on the trial bench at the time and had been there for a while when I got there. And uh, a lot of us turned to, turned to Tracy advice. Mizell was there for a, for, a while, for a little while. For a few months, we overlapped, and he was always uh, someone I, I could turn to as well.
0: Well, and that actually answered what my next question was, which was, I was curious about what mentors you had along the way, and it sounds like you had a great support system within the court itself. Did you carry over any mentors uh, from Baker Botts or from your law school experience? Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, Yes, Judge Abbott continued to be Judge Abbott, and then Attorney General Abbott, and then Governor Abbott right. continued to be continued to be a great mentor uh, to me. From uh, from law school, uh, Gus Schill and uh, Professor Joyce and Professor Regazzo were were always good mentors for me. Uh, from Baker Botts, probably the one that I took. Well, there were a couple, uh, Scott Rosell, who ended up the general counsel at center point energy, mm-hmm. uh, has stayed a friend and mentor for a long time since then. And, uh, George Shipley, who has left Baker Botts and started now about 10 years ago, left Baker Botts and started his own firm, mm-hmm. Shipley, Snell, Montgomery. And George and I are, George has been a big mentor of mine for a long
0: time. Yeah, I, uh, like hearing that you have mentors from so many different parts of your legal life. I think it's important to kind of have that variety. And it's um, interesting to hear how those mentorships can develop into lifelong friendships too.
1: You know, one, one of the best examples of that is uh, Tom Phillips. Mm-hmm. He, is, he was the Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court when I was a law clerk. And then, uh, then he was still on the court when I later became a judge. And we got to know each other on a more, uh, on a more equal basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then he was at the, then he left the bench and went to the, went to the law firm. And and we have gotten to be friends and it, so it wasn't just a, it wasn't as much a mentor becoming my friend as it was a hero becoming my friend. Wow. It's still just so wild to me when I see him and get to visit with him and And, uh, and we're buddies now. We're not, it's not a chief justice law clerk relationship anymore. It's
0: right. That's awesome. I like hearing that. So from the 55th district court in 2007, you moved to the 14th court of appeals. Um, and so I'm curious at this point, you know, you're moving from the district court to an appellate court. What was that transition like at this point? You had learned a lot about being at the district court at a trial court, um, what was the learning cor- curve like for that transition?
1: Well, one, one, one of the big things was at the Court of Appeals, of course, I had to start. Uh, I also had family law cases and criminal cases, mm. which I had not had before. I hadn't done any, you know, having wanted to be a prosecutor when I went to law school, the first criminal law I ever did was when I got to the Court of Appeals. I, there was no criminal, I had no criminal law experience until getting there. So that was something I had to I had to pick up. Mm-hmm. And also there I had to start explaining the reasoning behind the decisions that I made, which Mm -hmm. I never really had to do on the trial bench. In in Texas, trial judges don't write opinions, just orders, it's pretty much granted or denied,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, sustained or overruled. Uh, So I had to start justifying the decisions I made in writing, which was fine with me, I had done that as a, I had helped to do that when I was a law clerk at the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. uh, and I liked I like writing, so that was that was a nice adjustment for me to make. I had to get used to having to convince somebody else, though, that I was that I had the law right mm-hmm. in order for the decision to come out the way I thought it ought to come out. Um, because I wasn't judging cases on my own; I was on a panel of three, so I had to get at least one other person to agree with me. And it. Another nice adjustment, though, was I had a staff attorney and a law clerk. At okay. the court of appeals, and those were relationships that I valued. And I had a very, I had a couple of very experienced staff attorneys mm-hmm. who were able to kind of show me the ropes when I got there. And that was really, that was really nice. And Jane was there. She was over on the first court of appeals. And I could, I could, uh, that mentorship continued. Um, and uh, I got, to know some new people on the court, that uh, it was it was a great experience. That was six years in the court of appeals, and I really enjoyed it.
0: Wow, yeah, and really sounds like prepared you for uh, your next step into the Texas Supreme Court, being on a panel of judges, having to justify your opinions, um, having staff attorneys and law clerks. So, sounds like it was a great training ground for you, really. It was. At that same time uh, that you were on the Court of Appeals, you also volunteered for uh, the Star Court. Can you tell us what that is?
1: Yes, Star Court is a is a drug court, mm-hmm. and what that means is it's it's a uh, it's a special t- type of deferred adjudication probation, and it is for nonviolent felony offenders who are addicted to drugs. And they are certain nonviolent felony offenders are picked out and offered the opportunity to go to drug court. Mm-hmm. and that involves uh, that involves at the beginning, going into court once a week to see the judge. Uh, meeting with your probation officer once a week. It involves residential drug treatment, uh, and as yes, you move through the program, you're going to see the judge less, your senior probation officer less. You're going into outpatient treatment instead of residential treatment, uh, and it's got a great track record of getting people off of drugs and uh, keeping them from recidivating,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it was such an, it was, it's the, it is the most rewarding thing I have done as a judge. Once a week I would go over there and preside over that, that star court docket. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it was a combination of, it added accountability to treatment. So Mm -hmm. you couldn't just walk out of the treatment because you were going to get, because you had to go see the judge the next week. And if you didn't keep up with, with your with the conditions of your probation which mm-hmm. included this treatment uh then you would then you would go to prison and that the first time i sent anybody to prison was as a drug court judge not mm-hmm. as a federal district judge but as a drug court judge because some we had people who would who would abscond or something and uh, they, they were surrendering a great opportunity uh and there were consequences for that mm-hmm. but it was but the ripple effect of you get one person off of drugs, you get one person out of, out of the criminal courthouse mm-hmm. uh, and out of the jails, there's a ripple effect. Their family, all the people who are around them, they become inspirations to other people. And it was wonderful to watch that
0: occur, Yeah, to be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, and for me, I have a mental health background. I was a a therapist before coming to law school, and I can definitely echo, you know, just how important programs like that are um, to give alternatives when, you know, individuals would otherwise just end up serving time and not maybe having that same opportunity to um, work towards a goal and have that accountability, like you said. Um, So I think it's really great that that program exists and that you were able to be a part of that. So in 2013, you were appointed to the Supreme Court of Texas. Um, What was it like moving again from the Court of Appeals to the highest court in the state of Texas, where you're now on a panel of more judges than just three, um, and really working on some very important uh, decisions?
1: It was probably the... Of the adjustments I've had to make moving from post to post, mm-hmm. that was the, that was probably the most profound. Uh, it, it, it involved a physical move. I, we had to uproot, had to uproot my family and move them from Houston to Austin. My, we have three kids and our middle, our middle son was exactly halfway through high
0: school, which is a
1: really, oh,
0: that's tough.
1: really, I'm very glad that that worked out well for him. He ended up liking his high school in Austin better than he liked his high school in Houston, but we were very worried about about Him, especially, um, it was a big switch. Uh, I had to I had to campaign to keep the seat. Mm-hmm. And it was a statewide campaign. That's a that's a big undertaking. The uh, the gravitas of the cases that you work on at the court as you mentioned is you know another level higher, uh, and with a lot more publicity for mm-hmm. those cases, uh, and. Now I'm having to convince four people that I'm right instead of just uh, instead of just one other person. Right. Uh, it, it was. I'm very very glad that I had that experience. I, I love that court. I had I had felt part of the court family ever since I had clerked there, and it was great to have clerked there and then to go back as a justice uh, and see all of the things that were the same and see all of the things that were different. Uh, and I I wouldn't give it back for anything.
0: That's wonderful. I'm uh, curious, you know, having been a clerk there and then coming kind of full circle, did you ever have any moments of imposter syndrome of maybe feeling like, oh, my gosh, I'm here as a judge at the Texas Supreme Court now and maybe I shouldn't be?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, for one thing, the the chief justice, Nathan Hecht,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: was, on, was a justice on the court when I clerked there. So, that there was a little bit of an imposter syndrome there because he's sitting there and now he's got to look at this guy who he first met as a law clerk sitting at the same table with him. And there were a lot of other people who still worked at the court from when I had been there before. In fact, my executive assistant, uh, had been judge Hightower and judge Abbott's executive assistant, oh Darla Sadler. And so I had, uh, Darla first knew me as a 25 year old law clerk and now she's calling me judge. Um, and we're still working together, but it's a much different relationship now. And there were other people too. So no, there was definitely some imposter syndrome.
0: Right. And probably some odd moments of deja vu, I'm sure.
1: Yes, there were there were. Uh,
0: so do you have a proudest moment or uh, a war story that you particularly enjoy from your time being on the Texas Supreme Court?
1: You know the um, I would say the proudest moment, uh, well, I, I had like three or four cases that seemed like that had cert filed on them. And every time I heard back, it was cert denied. And I got to report to the chief justice that the U S Supreme court was not going to take and reverse one of our cases. I was, I was very proud, but I think my proudest moment was, this was very early in my time at the court, uh, we had a couple of same-sex divorce cases at the court. They got mm-hmm. a lot of publicity. And were very politically charged cases, and I ended up drawing the opinion in that case,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: had to write the majority opinion in that case. And the just getting to a decision in that difficult case, uh, and bringing along some bringing along some other judges on the court who I respected so much. Uh, I was very, I was really very proud of that, of that opinion, getting that out. Um, my favorite war story though from the court is also my favorite case to talk about from when I was there. And I, it's, I love talking to kids about this case, especially. It's called uh, Lyra versus Houston German Shepherd Rescue Group. I think is what the name of the case. Is. And it's about a, it's about a dog it got, It was picked up by the pound in Houston, got adopted by Greater Houston German Shepherd Rescue Group. Then the family who owned the dog found out that the dog was there and the rescue group wouldn't give the dog back and they sued and the family sued the rescue group. Family won in the trial court. The rescue group appealed and won at the Court of Appeals and that case came up to the, to the Texas Supreme Court and we ended up issuing a procuring opinion Ruling that the dog was still the property of the of the family, but it's a it was a it's a it's a great case to use to explain to people, especially kids, who don't understand what civil litigation is, mm-hmm. what it's all about, and uh, the disappointment that I would see on kids' faces when they would come to visit the Supreme Court and they would hear we didn't do any criminal, there were no murder cases at the Supreme <laughs> Court, we were all civil. I finally had a case I could talk to them about. Right. And I would tell the story of that case to a crowd of school kids and just to rapt attention. They wanted to know every detail of how the case proceeded because it was about a family
2: dog. And right. They could relate to it.
0: That is so uh, such a wonderful story and very interesting timing because I am taking a writing seminar this summer that is an animal law course. And so that's actually a case that has come up in our class talking about yes yeah yeah so um that's very cool that that is something that you get to share with kids and get them excited and interested in the law when sometimes i know that it can be very dry and maybe not uh, capture that attention like a big murder case might um right
1: yeah i say we don't do any murder cases but we do a lot of insurance law and tax (laughs) law and you know they're just falling asleep
0: right um well, it sounds like that was just a wonderful experience for you, and all of these experiences together have prepared you for this seat that you now occupy, which is in the Southern District of Texas, the federal bench. You were sworn in um, in 2019, in September and fall of 2019, so before all of this madness of the pandemic hit. Um what has your first year been like? You had a few months to kind of settle in before you had to seriously adjust the way that you did business.
1: Yes, yes, and it has been it has been a big has been a big adjustment. I am happy that I that I didn't come on. Uh, there's a new judge who who has come on in Corpus Christi in our district, uh, Drew Tipton,
2: mm-hmm. who
1: came on in the middle of all this, and I'm glad I at least had a few months uh, pre pandemic. Uh, to get my feet wet Mm -hmm. it's been you know the the biggest i'd say that i'd say the two biggest adjustments have been that uh two of my law clerks have gone completely virtual they are they're working from home which is completely understandable and preferable Mm -hmm. uh and not getting to not getting to have some one-on-one time face actual face time with them has been an adjustment and it's been disappointing. I'm glad we got to work together pre-pandemic uh, mm-hmm. when we could actually be in the same room. Um, the other big change has been uh, jury trials. We haven't, uh, we've completely shut down jury trials uh, through the, um, until Labor Day for sure, and and possibly beyond mm-hmm. beyond that Uh Otherwise, uh, I'm doing my, I'm doing all my other hearings over the telephone or on zoom. And, uh, I was doing a lot on the telephone before the pandemic hit, just cause I'm down in Galveston. A lot of times the lawyers are in Houston or elsewhere right. and it's, we'll just convene a hearing on the telephone instead of making people come all the way down here. So that wasn't much of an adjustment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the fact that we are doing all of them that way has been an adjustment. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I think, the big, I think the big challenge will be when we do go back to jury trials and we've got to put in a protocol to keep everybody safe and healthy uh, to get the wheels of justice
2: rolling again.
0: Right. Yeah, I can imagine that's going to be um, just a really big headache for you and whoever else has to kind of organize that program and figure out how to go about doing that, but I'm sure that – there are a lot of lawyers out there that are waiting patiently for that day to come so that they can get on with their jobs as well. Um, so with all of your experience as a judge, I'm curious about how you kind of approach evaluating the matters before you, if you have a particular philosophical approach to your duties as a judge. Um, and I'll kind of Harken back to your statement about working for two different um, judges on the Texas Supreme Court that were from different political parties, but you said, you know, it was really more of their, it wasn't about their political party, it was about um, their approach and their experiences and how they looked at the matter. So I'm wondering what that approach has been developed into for you.
1: Well, you know, I, um, as far as evaluating the cases that come in front of me, uh, I I would say that. I have a conservative judicial philosophy, which I, when I was having to campaign, I would spend a lot of time explaining to voters. There's a difference between a conservative judicial philosophy and a conservative political philosophy. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I believe very strongly in stare decisis. I believe very strongly in sticking close to the, to the text of whatever it is that I am being called upon to interpret. But um, what, What folks may find more interesting is the difference in approach that I have discovered from being a a trial judge and being an appellate judge. Mm -hmm. And they are, uh, they are, the difference is very profound. As an appellate judge, you're just having to get the law right. Mm That's all your job is. As a trial judge, you are You should be much more focused on making sure that people feel like they have had their day in court Mm -hmm. that uh, it's less of a burden on an appellate judge than it is on a trial judge for people to feel like they have been heard and that the system has been fair to them Mm -hmm. and that's another big difference between being a trial judge and an appellate judge is the fairness has to be taken into account on a regular basis as a trial judge and not really not really in the same way as an appellate judge uh, a lot of the a lot of evidentiary rulings that a trial judge makes come down to I mean the rules come right out and say that the judge needs to do the fair thing in this circumstance mm-hmm. and uh, so my approach to being a trial judge is to constantly remind myself that that it is incumbent upon me to make sure that the parties who are in front of me, feel fairly treated by the system, and yet they're a fair day. In
2: court. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I'll just um, shout you some praise real quick. I was reading articles in preparation for this interview, and I think that was one of the main things that I heard in, in quotes from people that have been before you as a trial judge is that, um, you know, he's a he's a fair man and he's a fair judge and he wants to give that opportunity to be heard in court um and that is so 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 important to our legal system and the judicial process so i'm glad to hear that that is such a foundational part of your philosophy philosophical approach um so i'm going to shift a little bit from talking about your career itself because I uh, am super curious about the historic home that you and your wife Susanna live in in Galveston. I actually uh, Google mapped it, and it's a beautiful home. And I'd like to hear more about what it's like to own a historical home.
1: You know, we we are so we were so happy to to find it, and we love the We love the street that we live on, and the house itself. The house itself was built in 1870, which makes it uh, 150 years old this year, and that makes it old even for a galveston house a lot of the houses the old, a lot of the old houses in galveston are 1880s or 1890s this is uh, especially old and it's been uh it's been it's been great you have to get used to uh floors that kind of feel like a roller coaster sometimes they're not <laughs> they're not completely they're not completely flat and you have to uh, get used to creaks and groans from your house but mm-hmm. uh, we have We have really enjoyed
0: it. That's very cool to hear. And um, I'm sure everyone would love to see a Cribs episode of Judge Brown's Historical Home come out one day. Doubtful, but it would be cool to see. So I'm also curious, you served on the board of the Texas Historical Foundation as well, so you have this interest in history and preserving history. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. I really enjoyed my time on the Historical Foundation board. Uh, what we did was grant money to applicants and recipients from around the state who were engaged in different historical preservation projects. And so I got to learn about all of the neat things that people are doing around the state to preserve the history of Texas. Uh, I'm not on that board anymore, but I am on the board of the Texas Supreme Court Historical Society, which ah, okay. is, which kind of has a, a similar focus. It's just, it pays more attention to. Uh, the history of the Texas Supreme Court and all of the courts in Texas and uh, does some great work, both sponsoring books. We've got a series of books that we are using and we are providing to seventh grade, seventh graders across the state when they're studying Texas uh, history to learn about the, learn about the courts. It's the historical society who, make sure that there are portraits done of all of the judges and that the portraits get put into the, into the Supreme court.
2: Wow. Building.
1: And we've even, we've even gone, we're even going back and uh, judges who didn't get their portraits made. We are uh, going back and arranging for their portraits to be done so they can be added to the courts collection. And so both the historical foundation and the historical society have given me an outlet for my love of history. And I've really, been happy to be
0: able to do that. Yeah, that is wonderful. And um, for the Texas Supreme Court, that's not a program that I knew about, so that's definitely something I'll be looking into after this. Um, You should join. Oh, can I join?
1: You can join the the Texas Supreme Court. Oh, well,
0: I will be looking into that because I'm also a lover of history and just old documents, and it's such uh, an important task that we we maintain. Um, So we just have a few minutes left, so I want to ask you, Judge Brown, What advice would you give to law students or young lawyers who want to become judges?
1: You know, there are a handful of things that you need that you need to do. Uh, One of them is and probably the hardest is getting that courtroom experience that I was talking about Mm -hmm. to be able to say, you know, I should be a judge because I know how things work in a courtroom and here's proof of that. It's easier to do if you go off and become a if you go off and become a prosecutor than it is if you go off and become a civil litigator. But uh, but there are, there are ways to do it. You you just have to seek out seek out that kind of work. Um, you. Another thing you've got to do is keep your nose clean, uh, and that goes for. You know, of, of course, avoiding criminal activity and drugs, right. but also. Uh, a bigger pitfall these days is social media. Mm -hmm. You've got to be careful about what you say. And this is true for being in the legal profession at all. Right. It's being careful what you say on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, whatever else you do. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, becoming a judge, whether you want to go into the the federal bench or the state bench, also involves getting involved in politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, I would encourage anyone who's interested in that to to start paying attention to politics, to get involved in some judicial races, or to uh, just be aware and be active, be an active Mm -hmm. citizen. Um, I think all of those things are essential to uh, someone who wants to, who aspires to be a judge.
0: Mm That was all really great practical advice. So thank you for that. And kind of in the same vein, do you have any advice for students that might want to become law clerks one day as you did straight out of law school?
1: I think the two biggest things there are grades. You've got to get, you've got to keep your grades up. Uh, It's clerkships are very competitive Mm -hmm. and that's one way in which judges distinguish between applicants is on grades. And then writing is such a huge part of every clerkship, Uh, improving your writing, uh, getting the best writing sample that you can possibly get. And as you said, uh, you can improve your writing. It's not something that just comes naturally and some people can do it and some people can't. You can get better at it. Mm -hmm. And whether you wanna be a law clerk or not, I encourage everyone to pay close attention to their writing, to write deliberately and uh, uh, it'll if you want to be a law clerk, it, it's essential.
0: Well, and on that on that note, I'll ask you our our last question, which we ask to every guest: um, Are you pro Oxford comma or not?
1: I am militantly pro Oxford comma.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you, Judge Brown, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was fantastic just hearing about your life and career. And I know that this will be an inspiring episode to other students um, and lawyers that maybe one day want to become judges.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. Emphasis Added is a podcast by the Houston Law Review. Production is possible because of generous support from the Houston Law Review Alumni Association. If you have thoughts on today's episode or suggestions for a future episode, email us at emphasisadded at HoustonLawReview.org. Follow the Houston Law Review on Twitter and Instagram at HoustonLRev, or find us on Facebook under the name Houston Law Review.